You know, there are different kinds of sermons. Some sermons are deeply theological, in which the preacher will take some theological truth and explain it and analyze it. Uh, Some sermons are very practical, in which the preacher will give a list of how-tos, primarily how to live the Christian life. Other sermons are historical, where the preacher will take some biblical story or historical account and then retell it and then draw from it lessons. Still other sermons are quite personal, in which the truths of Scripture are taken and directly applied to the hearts and lives of believers. You know, that's when it's said the preacher has quit preaching and gone to meddling. Many Christians are averse to those kinds of sermons. They want to keep the truth of Scripture at arm's length. They want to look at the teachings of Scripture from a completely objective perspective and are averse to grappling with the subjective implications of the text before them. But, you know, there's a sense in which every sermon ought to be a meddling sermon because the truths of Scripture are not intended just to fill our minds but to penetrate to our hearts. Remember what Hebrews 4, 4.12 tells us. If you back up in your Bible just a few pages, you'll find Hebrews chapter 4. Familiar verse in verse 12, Hebrews 4.12. For the Word of God, it says is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word of God is alive, the Bible says. The Word of God is active and it is sharp. It is the, the, the sword of the Spirit. That is, it's the tool... God the Holy Spirit uses to pierce to our innermost being to deal with our lives in the most personal ways. It is what God uses to expose our true thoughts, intentions, and motives. Let's be real honest here for just a moment. We, can, we, can, we know each other well enough. We can be honest with each other. If during these times together like this in the word of God your heart is never pierced and your sin is never exposed if if under the preaching of the word you never really feel uncomfortable then there's a problem either a problem with my sermons or a problem with your heart Every sermon ought to have something personal in it where the Holy Spirit takes the truth and judges, as the Bible says, between the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And I say that this morning to start because I know this sermon is going at points to be something of a meddling sermon. Our text deals with how we relate to the civil government and how our relationship with Christ should impact or make a difference in that part of our lives. And so we're going to go through this text. I'm going, it's a six-point sermon. I'm going to draw six 
things that I find in these verses for you about that this morning. And first, we find a command. And the command here and in other Bible passages to you as a believer is to submit. To submit to the civil government. That's what the text says. Submit yourselves. Last week in our text from verses 11 and 12 of this chapter, remember we looked at the power of a godly life. And I said then that that one of the first things that you must do in order to make a difference in the place where you live is to understand who you are, your place in life. And, And the Bible told us in those verses that we are two things. One, we are citizens of a, of a different country. We are aliens and strangers here. That our citizenship is in heaven, and yet we live before a watching world. And the way that we live in this world makes a powerful statement to those who observe us, to unbelievers who see us. And we all have obligations that we must fulfill in this culture in which we live, the society in which God has placed us. And even though our citizenship is in heaven, we have responsibilities here on earth. And our lives of holiness and godliness bear witness to the power of the gospel to an unbelieving world. You see, even though we're not of this world, we do live in this world. And we have responsibilities that touch in different worldly spheres. And we must fulfill them. And as those who bear the name of Christ, we're to perform those responsibilities to the best of our ability. We are to be model citizens. In fact, we might say it a different way. We are to model what a true citizen is. If there's anyone who lives with real citizenship who gets the civics award and ought to be a believer lives his life in obedience to the word of God a model citizen a Christian citizen is submissive to the civil authority and even though we're not under ultimately the authority of the civil authorities God still commands us to be submissive to them. That is our basic responsibility to the civil authorities. You might remember if we read from uh, Romans chapter 13 a minute, a minute ago, verse 13.1. For every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. And every person must include every Christian. We are to submit to the government. And Paul goes on to tell us why. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. To put it another way, the civil authorities that exist are divinely appointed. They are established by God. And we are to submit ourselves to them. That is the command. But second, there's the motive or the motivation we have for submitting ourselves to the civil authorities in that way. And the text goes on to say it is for the Lord's sake. 
Submit yourselves, it says, for the Lord's sake. The Bible teaches that everything that we do is to be done for the glory of God. You know, 1 Corinthians tells us, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. Our, the first question and answer in the Shorter Catechism is, what is man's chief end? The answer is, man's chief end is to what? It's to glorify God. Everything that we do is to be done for the Lord's sake. Because it honors and glorifies the Lord. And, and this is specifically mentioned as an area that we perform for the Lord's sake. Look at what the text says again. Submit yourselves, verse 13, for the Lord's sake to every human institution. We obey earthly authority in order to honor God, to recognize His sovereign plan, and to do His holy will. There is no dichotomy between obeying civil authority and obeying God's authority. One is an expression of the other. As believers, we are the representatives of Jesus Christ in society. After all, you call yourself a Christian. The root word of Christian is Christ. You bear the name of Christ. And the way that you live your life should reflect it, glorify, honor Him. And one of the ways you do that is by submitting to the civil authorities. That's exactly the way Jesus lived His life. You know, Jesus came to do His Father's will. That's what He said. I came to do my Father's will. But part of doing His Father's will was obeying the law. God's law as well as civil law. Jesus submitted Himself to the governmental officials in Galilee and Judea where He spent most of His life. Back when I was a teenager, there was a book that was written that was quite popular among young folks. It was called Jesus the Revolutionary. It was back in the days of uh, protests against the war in Vietnam. There was a lot of anti-government sentiment on college campuses in those days and among young adults. Many of them looked at Jesus to try to find an example for their revolution for their revolt against the civil authorities. They tried to look to Jesus as a revolutionary person. Really? The truth is that Jesus was anything but. Even though Jesus had all authority in and of himself given to him by God, even though he possessed divine power to perform all kinds of incredible miracles, Jesus never used that authority and never invoked that power to try to overthrow or undermine the government. No, Jesus submitted himself, didn't he, to the governing authorities, even though they were ungodly, even though they opposed him. Oh, he would call them what they were. He would identify them in their unbelief or in their disobedience. But not only did Jesus tell His disciples, look, now you render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. 
But Jesus also submitted himself to the death sentence pronounced on him by the Roman government. And even though he could have called 10,000 angels to deliver him from the oppressive government of Rome, that at the request of the Jews put him to death, he didn't. He submitted himself to their authority. Why did he do that? Same reason you and I are to do it. It was for the Lord's sake. It was to honor him. Then third, we find the extent, that is the extent of our submission. Look what the text says in verses 13 and 14 again. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. The Bible clearly says we are to submit ourselves to every level of civil government. All the way from the president down to the local city council and board of supervisors. Notice there is, or there are, no qualifiers here. No ifs. No exceptions. Does not say submit to every human institution if you agree with their politics. Doesn't say submit to every human institution if they're kind and benevolent or if they're doing their job well or if they're doing the right thing or if they're godly and righteous. There is none of that. Christians are to obey the civil authorities regardless. That means every law is to be obeyed. Now, sometimes we think laws are trivial, and some laws are antiquated, and some laws are silly. I would assume that the, 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 the law that is broken the most often by most all of us is the speed limit. Wouldn't you agree? Which one of you did not go over the speed limit this past week? We've all done it. We all do it. I'm trying to do better. Some of us do it a lot. But don't you realize every time, let's be frank here, every time you go over the speed limit, you're not in submission to those in authority over you and who have made those laws let me be real personal here for a moment it's a problem folks for a Christian on a radar detector because the one purpose for that radar detector is to enable you to do what to break the law it's really interesting isn't it to be going down the interstate and have some vehicle come roaring by you speeding down the interstate with a sign on the big sign on the wind that says real men love Jesus just one example common example but the point is that as believers folks we're obligated we're obligated to obey the law 
to honor the Lord in doing that. Even when we think the law is silly, obtrusive, or antiquated. Now, it's interesting the text does give us here the primary responsibility for government. We find that in verse 14. Where it is the punishment of evildoers. And it's the praise of those who do right. That's really the primary function of civil government. Is to keep law in order. To punish those who disobey the law. And to praise those who do keep the law. Essentially, that's what Romans 13 says. Now, it would be a whole other sermon and probably an appropriate sermon to deal with the vast number of ways that our government exceeds its responsibility in the lives of its citizens. Going far beyond what God gives to the government to do. The primary role of the government is to restrain evil and to promote good. Our responsibility, though, as believers is to obey the law and to do what the government says even if we think the law is invalid or the governor has overstepped its authority. The only exception to that rule, now listen to me, the only exception to that rule, and there is one exception, is when the law of the state requires us to disobey the law of God. The law of God always supersedes the law of the state. I think it's where Hobby Lobby was. Where they believed that to obey the requirements of the health care law would force them in their own hearts to disobey the law of God. And they said, we can't do that. And so they sought civil relief in the courts. From all their testimony, if they'd failed in the courts, they'd have shut down their business. Rather than disobey the law of God, to obey the law of man. Other businesses have faced that choice or a similar choice in regard to what the government requires regarding homosexuals. Do we disobey what God says to accommodate what the government tells us or do we engage in some form of civil disobedience to keep God's law above man's law folks those, those hard choices are going to be more frequent as believers try to live out their faith in different areas of life business people are going to face it doctors are going to face it uh, Churches may face it, where we have to decide, are we going to obey the law of God or are we going to obey the law of man when those two directly conflict? Now, Peter faced that. Peter wrote this letter. When you come to Acts chapter 4, Peter faced a dilemma, didn't he? Because the government told him not to preach. Now, the last command Jesus gave to Peter and to the other apostles before he ascended into heaven was, look, you go preach. You be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth, you make disciples of all the nations, you go preach. And and right at the bat, Peter's put to the test. The government comes and says, don't preach. 
What did Peter say? Peter said, I've got to obey God rather than man. And he engaged in civil disobedience. He went on preaching. And he suffered the consequences. He was thrown into jail because of it. But the extent is clear. We are to obey the laws of the state, except when those laws violate or force us to violate the law of God. Then, in the fourth place, we find the reason. The reason why we're to submit, and it really is twofold. Uh, part of it is what we just saw. It's, it's the will of God, verse 15. For such is the will of God. Submitting to civil authority is a manifestation of following God's will for your life. Reflection or submission to the civil authorities is a reflection of our submission to God. And the way that we submit to the civil authority is a reflection of our submission to Him. But the other reason given in verse 15 is so that our critics might be silenced. You know, we saw the same thing, didn't we, let from verse 12 last week where um, Peter says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. This is verse 12. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. You know, we said then that unbelievers love to poke holes in the testimony of Christians. And the one thing they use that, use more than anything else, is our own hypocrisy. When we do one thing and say something else, or say something, one thing and do something else. And here, Peter is saying, it's when you do right. It's when you obey the law that you silence these ignorant, foolish people who try to denigrate believers and their faith. Fifth, we find a caution. And the caution is not to use the freedom that we have in Christ as an excuse to sin or to disobey the law. Look what the text says, verse 16. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it rather as, a bond, as bond slaves of God. Now, the, the Bible's clear, folks. The gospel sets us free. Jesus said, the truth shall make you free. If you believe in me, you will be free indeed, Jesus says. We're free in Christ from the condemnation of sin. We're free from the penalty of the law. We're free from the bondage to Satan. We're free from the control of this world. We're free from the power of death. We have some wonderful freedoms because of our relationship with Christ. But we're not free to disobey either the law of God or the law of the state. Now there's a strain in some Reformed churches where it is thought that it really doesn't matter so much how you live. Because whatever sin you commit, whatever disobedience you might engage in, it's all covered by grace. Well, that's true. It is all covered by grace. The blood of Jesus does cover all our sin. 
But we're not to use that blessed truth as an excuse to engage in sin. It's like Paul asked in Romans 6, are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? And his answer to that question is in the strongest term possible in the Greek. It's meganoita. God forbid, may it never be, it would ever abuse the grace of God as a license for sin to say, oh, it doesn't matter. I can live as I want and Jesus will forgive me. That's what Peter's saying here. Act as free men and yet do not use your freedom as a covering for evil. Instead, your freedom in Christ ought to drive you to live your life as a bond slave of God. This one who gave you such great freedom from the penalty and the power of sin ought to lead you to obey Him and serve Him all the more. That's the caution. And then sixth, we see the scope or the broad expanse of this admonition. Look at verse 17. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Now look, that one verse would make a great four-point sermon in itself. Preachers love verses that just kind of fall apart into various various uh, points. That would be a great, I'll spare you that this morning. Let's look briefly at these admonitions. There's a combined exhortation first. It says, honor all people, love the brotherhood. I take those together because it reflects, I think, what Paul tells us in Galatians 6, 12. Do good to all men, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. Every person is created in the image of God. Every person, I don't care how sinful they are. If they're living under the bridge down here, destitute, if they're in parchment, convicted of the gravest of crimes, every person is made in the image of God, has the mark of God in them. And that's why the Bible says we're to honor all people. We're to do good to all men. We are not to discriminate. James comes down very hard in his epistle against discrimination in the church. We're not to discriminate on the basis of color, race, nationality, status, economic standing. We're to honor and do good to all people. But we're especially to do good to those of the household of faith or as Peter describes them here, the brotherhood. You see the, you see the difference here even in the text, don't you? Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. We honor all people. But we have real love a special love for other people in the body of Christ. And on a practical 
level in the particular manifestation of the church or the body of Christ to which God has led us. While we're concerned about the needs of all people, we're in particular concerned about the needs of those in the church. I had a call from someone in the community this week. It happens often. We try to our best to discern, to wade through the particulars, to see if the need is real, the person is sincere. And we deemed in this case that the person was sincere, the need was real, and so North Point helped someone in the community this this week out of our benevolent fund. We're called on by the Word of God to do that. We're happy to be able to do that. And yet when needs arise in our own body, we even have a greater desire to meet those because we honor all people, but we love the brotherhood. We do what's right before the Lord in the lives of all who call upon us, but we are specially touched by the needs of the brotherhood. Again, Paul says, do good to all people, but especially especially to those of the household of faith. We're also here, it says, to fear God. That is, we're to live in humble reverence before Him. Again, that's not a cowering fear. It's a respect, sense of awe that leads us to obedience. Then finally, the last exhortation is honor the king. Brings us full circle, doesn't it? Back to what we found in verse 13 about submitting ourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. When the Bible says to honor the king, it means to have respect for and honor those who have the ultimate authority over you. Where there's a king, an emperor, a dictator, or a president. Our responsibility as believers is to give them honor. Now, sometimes that's hard. Especially when you disagree with their politics or their policies you do not agree with the way they govern, when you do not respect their values, or when you do not appreciate their lifestyle. But you know, Peter wrote this letter in the days when Nero was the emperor. He was a godless man and no friend to Christians. And yet look how strongly Peter says it. In fact, this letter was written to believers who were chafing under authoritative and oppressive governmental officials. In the midst of it, Peter says, submit yourselves to them and honor them. Fast forward to 2014 in the United States of America. Some of us struggle, don't we? With our president and with the leaders of Congress. Look, folks, I have problems with politicians on both sides of the aisle. I'm a nonpartisan person when it comes to unhappiness and disagreement 
with the civil authorities. I'll be real honest. I have a hard time listening to the president, to the speaker of the house, and to the majority and the minority leader of the Senate. It's personal. It's political. And even though I struggle with that, I have a God-given responsibility to give honor. Not necessarily to honor the person, but to honor the position. Because what does the Bible say? All authority has been established by God, and those that exist are appointed by Him. Let's be honest. Lots of Christians who fail in that area. Lots of emails are sent by lots of Christians that defame and dishonor the office. They need to be careful. Because it's a reflection of our witness and our obedience to the Word of God. Where someone under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who's living under Emperor Nero, said, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And don't you forget to honor the King. God calls on us to be the light of the world. And the salt of the earth. Sometimes that's easier said than done. Folks, living out your faith in a God-honoring way sometimes is hard. And it calls, God calls on us to shine a light. He calls on us to sprinkle salt. And one of the ways we do that as believers is living out our faith and our relationship with the civil authorities. Again, the gospel is life-changing. It transforms us, and this is one of the areas where it's to do that. And so my exhortation to all of us today is to be the people God's called us to be. To be people who are gospel-driven. To seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. But in our life here in this world, to live in a way that glorifies our Savior and honors our God as we live our lives daily before Him and before our watching world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You're a good God. We thank You for the good things You do for us. You are a demanding God who demands a lot of us. And sometimes what You require is hard. But thank You that You always give the grace to do it. So bless us as we seek to live out our lives before you every day. Help us to be a strong witness to the life-changing power of the gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.